0: Well, Liz, I, uh, I have an idea. Lay it on me. I feel like lately everyone's been pretty okay with us. <laughs> no one's really been angry at our podcast for any I particular
1: mean, reason. I feel like, okay. It's probably you been know, about birds, a month. Yeah. Right?
0: But, you know, the chickens, the chickens squawk. You know, mm. the birds lay eggs, but, mm. you know, I'm asleep in bed. Right. But... Uh, let's uh, let's. I feel like, um, I feel like we should change that.
1: You wanna provoke some fights?
0: Yeah. Uh, I, so I have what's called BPD. <laughs> uh, That's not, I that, okay. Never mind. Yeah, borderline <laughs> pimping, dude. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I'm like right on the edge of big pimping. And, uh, it's, you're going to get there someday. Well, you, so like, I don't have a lot of love in my life, but I do love, I do like, you know, I, I, I tend not to like leave my domicile, but I, uh, I love my haters. And one thing I haven't really been gaining lately is more haters. And so I haven't really been able to gain love. And if you mm. gain, if you can't gain love, Einstein said this, if you can't gain love, uh, then what do you really gain? Mm, that's profound. hmm And so... Um, this is your hate hard campaign. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes on hate campaign. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I think... I, I'm workshopping a couple of these. You know, we, we, we got to figure out what we're talking about in the episode today. But I was thinking, like, we could do two things. My number one instinct is just to end the podcast.
1: Well, I don't think we should do that.
0: Yeah, well, I, no, well, I, I know you wouldn't think that. But, like, me and my friend Rebecca... Uh, have been doing some recordings too, and I know I've joked there's about. There's no podcast, Rebecca. So uh, there's not only one Rebecca. There's two Rebecca's. Liz, There are not two Rebecca's. Uh huh. And they both spell. They both spell with a K. This is fake news. Mm, it's actually real opinion. Um. No. What do they live in Canada? Did you? Meet I'm not them at telling you camp? where they live. I'm going to tell you where they live. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you where a pair of beautiful podcast estres that I picked up on Craig's Listolino, um live so you can go there and cut their vocal cords. I would cool. never do that. Cool world. Cool. You know um, me. I'd
1: probably show up with like a cake and be like, hey, so I baked this for you. Maybe we could talk about you not starting this
0: podcast with Braze. Do not do not bake these people cakes. Uh, they are both highly so. I don't know if you can tell by the name Rebecca, like me, they're Jewish and they have a lot of dietary restrictions. Oh my god! And so if you bake them a cake, that's actually worse than 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 mutilating them. That's killing them. Welcome to True (laughs) and I. Sorry, Liz was about to talk and then I did that. No, it was fine. I was about to say hello. (laughs) Oh, well, the good thing about having a camera on here is I can tell when you're like going towards the mic to speak. And so, listeners, here's a little fun fact behind the curtain here. Whenever I speak at any point during this podcast, under any circumstances. Liz is actually about to speak and I'm interrupting her.
1: Yeah. This is yep. a nice little bit he does.
0: Little but cool bit he does. <laughs> Wait, you don't just interrupt with the same thing that I'm You don't just saying. interrupt with the same thing that <laughs> No, go ahead, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: All right, everyone no, speak, wel- speak, speak, speak
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dennis
1: the Menace over here.
0: Bad boy Dennis Brace Belden. Uh, I'm the Liz. Liz. We are joined by... uh, (laughs) Dennis Miller. Yes, Dennis the Miller. Uh, The king of references. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and I I don't know if I finished my sentence before I was rudely interrupted, but we are joined by... Oh, now you're interrupted. Whoa, again? (laughs) That's what we're doing now. Oh, I'm sorry. Have the tables turned? Uh, The table's about to get overturned. Put the gun Uh, down. I, you can't even see what I have in my hand. I could have anything you in my hand. You reach head. for the drawer. I could see you when you reach for the drawer. Baby, I'm we've been doing this over a year. I you I'm think I don't a, know what you're doing? These are my extra pair of glasses that I'm putting outside of my regular ones so I can see what an asshole you... Oh, these are my old prescription. Uh, you guys, listen. welcome to On. I'm Liz. I am Brace, joined by producer Young Chomsky. And, and we, boy, oh boy mm Hmm. Well, so before we start this, I felt like I, so we we spoiler alert. We're talking about Syria today, uh, and I, I I actually I don't know how to explain this, but I, I feel like I stayed fairly unpassionate uh, during the 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 interview, just because I feel like it's a little weird to do with a guest, uh, even though I talked to this guest before off off air at length on the phone, but like I feel. I, I, like I, so, for those of you who don't know, my background is I was in the Syrian Civil War. Uh, I fought with the YPG in 2016 and 2017, the very beginning of 2017. Uh, and I went out there as uh, well. I I think I am, uh, despite sort of pretensions to otherwise, I, I I think I am a sort of base idealist and and in some sense a romantic. And I. I which is not uh, like a good traits, but I, uh, having watched sort of like the U.S.'s involvement in Syria and particular involvement with the YPG over the past, I don't know, four years now, uh, has been, you know, when I went out there, it was, it was pretty different than, than, than how it is now. Uh, and it has been, I mean, I went out there under the Obama administration, so that's like, you know, literally four years ago. Um. But it has been pretty heartbreaking, uh, at times to watch, uh, basically like a lot of things change and sort of this, this real politic come into play. And, uh, and it, it, it I, I, tend not to talk about it just because I'm not, you know, I by no means an expert on a lot of this stuff. You know, I know what I know, but you know, it's not, I, I went out there to, to, to fight and participate into this, but like, I, I didn't go out there as an analyst. I'm not a journalist, uh. I'm, uh, I'm just a moron, but like it, uh, I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do this episode because it, 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 uh, this, this news that we're going to talk about specifically at the beginning here with the oil deal, uh, has been pretty, um, it, 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 it hit me pretty hard. Um, I've had, uh, I had like a lot of friends there die both while I was there and after I left. And it, which still happens. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the thing about a, a lot of these guys is their cadre, which we use that word a lot in the episode. That is the Kurdish word for cadre, which means somebody who has basically sworn their life is a member of the party for life. Uh, you know, is, is in very disciplined and, uh, and they're prof- well, I guess you would call them in previous times like a professional revolutionary. Uh, and that's mostly oh, actually the entire time I was there. That's who I was with. Uh, and so a lot of these guys are still fighting and still dying. Uh, and, I think, like, whenever I read news like this, you know, it, 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 it's difficult for me because I feel like that's, you know, sort of for nothing, um, especially if the U.S. gets its way. And so, like, this, uh, you know, I tend not to get, I, I get a little bashful or whatever talking about this kind of stuff. Um, also, just because it's sort of a weird, uh, I guess, emotionally charged topic for me. And I don't, you know, as much as I talk about myself in this podcast, I tend not to, like, really uh, talk about that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and so this, this, uh, I I follow this news pretty closely and a lot of this has been, um, you know, it, it has not been pleasant to read. Uh, and so I, I want to do this interview basically because I talked to Matthew and, and I, I felt like it was a very valuable conversation and I feel like we could do uh we would do well to have that you know recorded um but yeah i don't know i kind of don't know where i'm going because i kind of i wasn't planning on doing that but uh but let's just uh start her up Okay, welcome to what I'm sure will be a non-contentious episode that everybody agrees with and loves listening to. That's right, baby. We are taking, we are, we are taking off in a Reaper drone and heading to the skies of Idlib uh, with, uh, with another Syria episode. Uh, we have not done one of these for quite a while. And so I decided that we haven't had enough people mad at us lately. And uh, time to get back in the driver's seat with that. But this time we called in an expert. Uh, We have with us today Matthew Petty, uh, formerly, very recently formerly investigative journalist at the National Interest, who is about to start at the Quincy Institute. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show, so it's a little weird to be uh, now here in your dungeon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Through the looking glass. Yeah, he can see. We actually do record from a dungeon uh, in San Francisco that we rent out due to its soundproofing qualities. Um, let me start my little timer up, just so I don't lose track of time here. So, Matthew, there has been uh, recently, I mean, I don't know, maybe a week, two weeks ago, I, I guess two weeks at this point, uh, a flurry of articles coming out about an oil deal in, uh, in northern Syria between uh, the, the YPG, or rather the Kurdish political, or northern Syrian political apparatus there, and a company called Delta Crescent LLC, and this made a lot of news because Lindsey Graham sort of blurted it out in public. Uh, it had not been reported on really before that, and uh, and and it was pretty. Rec- I feel like it was reported pretty straightforwardly. There is this deal. Lindsey Graham said so. It's going ahead. Here's the company. But when I talk to you, and in fact, you wrote an article to this to this effect, I believe uh, that that isn't so straightforward. Because so, could you explain to our listeners what the hell is going on there?
2: Sure. So there's been some reporting and it seems like all the sources are on the American side or this is all coming from American sources saying that Delta Crescent LLC has inked a contract or signed a contract with the this – let's call them the Syrian Kurdish Autonomous Administration uh, mm-hmm. basically to develop Syria's oil fields, which right now are just like in a horrible condition. It's, it's basically people like sucking the oil out with a straw and burning yeah. them in these horrible backyard pits. And uh the contract I mean there's been different details reported it's going to build oil refineries or they were going to smuggle the oil out or something the effect but the i it was portrayed as a done deal. Pompeo said it's in implementation when Graham asked him about it um these news articles have all said it's it's been signed, but when I spoke to uh an official there uh a, a Kurdish official, they were basically like there's there's no contract um My understanding of it is that there was some kind of like MOU, a memorandum of understanding or letter of intent or something, but it's not a done deal. And like, you know, all these journalists have noticed that the Kurdish led administration is totally tight lipped about that. I think that's because there's not much there there. I think this is the U.S. side trying to strong arm them into accepting the deal. Um, what, What there is a there there is that because of the way U.S. sanctions are structured on Syria, You're not supposed to do business with the Assad regime. Um, You need a special license from the Treasury to do anything with Syrian oil. This company, Delta Crescent LLC, is the only company that has a license from the Treasury, as far as anyone's aware. So the way this is kind of coming off is is the U.S. basically saying... And the Kurds have said we're talking to a bunch of American and Russian companies, but the U.S. basically coming in and saying, Nope, you're going to deal with these guys. If you deal with anyone else, we'll sanction them. We'll cut them off from the U.S. financial system. And uh, that's it. It's a done deal now. Thank you for talking to our guys.
1: I think what's so funny about this story, just from a couple of angles, is that it really, I mean, you know, Brace kind of hit it on the head with saying that it, like, caught on, like, wildfire. Like, across the spe- political spectrum, there was this sort of, like, um... Uh, sort of just like chorus of the YPG has made this deal. Now, uh, you know, this is why they were there. This is what what the YPG was doing with the U.S. That this was, this is kind of like a uh, really neat and tidy narrative for um, pretty much all different factions like across the political spectrum, which makes the story so bizarre. Um, but you're right to say that it isn't as straightforward as that. I was hoping just, you know, We kind of said we've only done one episode on Syria. So I just kind of want to pause for a second um, and explain some things to our listeners. When we talk about the oil fields in Syria, like what exactly are we talking about? Because my understanding is that the amount of oil you said, suck it, you know, sucking it up with straws or whatever. Mm -hmm. The amount of oil we're talking about is not like, say, Kuwaiti oil or Iraqi oil. Is that correct?
2: (laughs) yeah i mean even before the war syria was not one of the biggest producers but like especially after i mean the u.s bombed the shit out of isis which was i mean isis at its peak was making a million and a half dollars a day from the oil fields which was not that much right um th- that's what we're talking about like post-war destruction um what, what, what's really valuable about the oil is not really who has it but who doesn't have it like the Syrian regime, the Assad regime, needs the oil for domestic purposes. Um, and, you know, if, if we made a deal to get it, we would deprive them of it. But, like, it's not something you could export at scale make a lot of money. If someone's making money off of it, it's going to be through, like, U.S. government contracts to guard the oil fields. Mm. Yeah.
0: That, that's – so, like, from what – so, Trump, Trump has famously referred to, uh, to Deirazor and to parts of Syria as the oil places, I believe. Uh he has been fairly nonspecific, but but it's been understood kind of what he's talking about. Uh and he's been he's been pretty blatant about it too. And and I think that's led a lot of people to believe that like, oh, you know, these companies are gonna move Chevron's gonna move in and make a ten billion dollars because it's mm-hmm. the Middle East and it has a lot of oil. Whereas whereas I, I think you're hitting it there is that it actually isn't really about making a ton of money from this oil because you know, there they're I believe they were. I read something where they're like behind Cuba in oil production, uh, in 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 some realm of it. Um, but it's about depriving them domestically, the government domestically, of, of the of the oil, and that's something I've noticed that the the U.S. government has been trying to do with with sort of the northern Syria area a lot. I mean, particularly in in regards to grain they were they were trying they were pressuring the YPG or PYD whatever the political apparatus there to not sell grain to the central government or not sell grain southwards uh and, and i noticed like i think a lot of people aren't really clear on exactly what the sanctions are here um, because you know we hear a lot, you know, in the sort of political left of, uh, of America about sanctions and how sanctions are 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 really destructive. Um, you know, that's that's often showcased really well with Iran, especially when in terms of medicine, because even though it's not officially sanctioned, uh, certainly it's it's it it they make it about as impossible as you can without officially sanctioning it. Um, and, and what do the sanctions on Syria look like, really?
2: Um, it's kind of like a layer cake. I mean, there's sanctions going back to the like 70s, the Cold War era, when we said they support terrorism, and uh, so we just lumped a bunch of sanctions on their economy. The, the most crushing ones were under Obama, when Obama signed a series of executive orders uh, under, the, I think it's called the Emergency Economic Powers Act, where he basically made the entire Syrian economy radioactive. Basically, like, if you sell anything to Syria or, uh, provide any, I think it's like goods and services is, is the mm-hmm. terminology they use. Uh, then you are going to be cut off from the U S financial system. And if you're an American, you'll probably like go to jail. Um, that's, that's actually the, one of the guys in the co-founders of Delta Crescent that we know about, uh, he was forced out of Syria by some, I think it was European sanctions, but a similar kind of thing. Near the beginning of the war, um, where he had been dealing with Syrian oil, and then suddenly it was like, if you continue to do this, you will be like a pariah in the world.
0: So wait, he was an American dealing with the Syrian government uh, in, in, in their oil supply? Yes, yes. Oh, huh. Yeah, I know I know that, like, I mean, there have been, I know there was a large scandal in, uh, in France with the, I believe, Lafarge uh, cement plants in Syria. There's a lot of cement plants in Syria. I have <laughs> been to a couple of them. Uh, and, and I know that there was something where I believe it was ISIS was operating the cement plant, or they were paying ISIS, excuse me, yeah, they were, I, I believe this, this French company was paying ISIS to allow its employees to continue operating a cement plant in Syria. Uh, and, and the same has been true, I believe, in Iraq. I think there were Italian engineers at a dam in, in, in uh, at a part of Iraq that they were also paying ISIS. And I know that that created a lot of legal problems in these countries, where in the terms of the dam, they actually really needed those engineers there because uh, you kind of don't want to evacuate engineers from a dam. The dams tend not to do well without anybody on them. Um, so, so this is like... This, this sort of lifting sanctions for this one particular company is basically a way of saying, these are our guys and you have to deal with them. Um, what and, and, and it's a way of, because you're saying they're talking to Russian companies, which shouldn't be surprising, but, but, but it's not really reported on. Uh, and so this is a kind of a way of muscling out the competition, it seems like.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Kurdish-led forces, the, there's a million different names. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the Kurdish-led administration wants to deal with both America and Russia, they're happy to have as, and, and, you know, in the military situation, they're being protected from Turkey by both Russian and American troops. So kind of what logically follows is why don't we get investment from both countries? That's a great deal for us. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I guess to zoom out, uh, the, the way Americans understand Syria is like the Kurds have always been our friends. They helped Trump destroy ISIS and then Trump betrayed him. I mean, if Americans follow Syria, yeah. But what's really going on <laughs> is that, yeah. What's what's really going on is that um, the U.S. is playing kind of good cop, bad cop with Turkey being the bad cop, and mm-hmm. the idea is to make the Syrian Kurdish revolutionary forces like weaken the ideological parts of it, make them dependent on the U.S., and turn Northeast Syria into a base where we can live out some of our Middle East policy goals. The biggest being muscle out Iran and Russia as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think this is like a master plan. It's been from the beginning. This is kind of like a lot of Obama-era factional fights that people like Pompeo and Bolton have really cleverly navigated so that no matter who wins in the U.S. government, they get their way, which is, again, pressuring Iran and Russia.
1: You mentioned factional fights, and this is something that we return to very often as kind of like a running uh, lens on the podcast, like a lens through which to understand um, kind of political power plays, you know, domestically and internationally with different agencies. But so when we're talking about different factions in Obama era versus Trump era, you know, can you kind of like walk through maybe what some of those? different, I don't know, allies, enemies, uh, ideologies, you know, kind of who we're talking about. I mean, I'm assuming mostly we're, we're looking at the State Department in terms of Syrian policy.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, basically, the beginning of the Syrian civil war during the Obama administration, everyone was convinced that the Assad government, which if you haven't picked up, is like the pro-Russia, pro-Iranian government in Damascus, uh, was going to fall. It wasn't really a question of, if it was a question of, like, when and who's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And you had people in the administration who, you know, wanted a full-throated kind of, like, uh, go in and deal with Assad, (laughs) no-fly zone. Hillary Clinton.
1: Yeah,
2: I know. Hillary Clinton was part of this faction. The State Department was very much (laughs) part of this. Uh, And then you had people who kind of wanted a a backup, hands-off approach. I think Biden, interestingly enough, leaned towards that. And the compromise option was, like, uh, operation Timber Sycamore, which is the largest CIA covert operation yes. since Afghanistan, right. funneled billions of dollars of weapons to these um, Syrian opposition groups. Uh, but later in the war, you had a problem called ISIS, uh, which kind of metastasized out of all the chaos um, when Assad didn't fall. Uh, and what the Pentagon... to do with
1: a problem like ISIS?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> The, the, don't get me wrong the CIA is perfectly happy to work with fascists but like when it's like an international fascist army of doom that's like a little bit like okay that's that's a headache for us um and uh yeah so the the Pentagon especially wanted to just deal with isis i mean it was a political headache at home but also like a legitimate security problem for the middle east uh and you know we tried we threw all this money at all these moderate, um, opposite, these Arab Sunni Arab opposition groups that we had been backing before through the CIA. Um, there was a program called train and equip where we spent like, yes, I'm pulling up the number, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's some ridiculous number. It's like hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars. To train this like anti ISIS but also anti Assad rebel group, yeah, five hundred million dollars. We trained fifty four guys, and they basically immediately got mugged by Al Qaeda on their way into Syria. Um. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean that that was one of the most incredible. I mean, cause it was it was pretty well reported, or I mean, it was reported at the time. That was one of the most incredible feats I've ever seen because they gave these guys this incredible. I mean, it must have been incredible. It was five hundred million fucking dollars training. For fifty-four guys, I don't. I'm not a math guy, but I I, that that seems like a lot per person. Uh, And then within like a week of them being in Syria, uh, somehow all of their equipment uh, made its way into ISIS hands. Uh, Not ISIS, Al Qaeda, but yeah. (laughs) Oh, Al Qaeda. Excuse me. Yeah, and that kept (laughs) happening too, though. Like it seems like with timber sycamore, uh, they would do things like I mean, and this was like uh, it was just really wild to watch because they would train these 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 groups who, you know, this is sort of where the phrase moderate rebels comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all those groups' equipment would somehow make its way either from sales or from, you know, literal muggings or just from joining uh, into into various, like, very extremist factions' hands.
2: Yes. Okay, basically, um, a lot of these groups that the U.S. was backing were, like, you know, there's a lot of talk about them being Islamist or Islamist sympathetic, and I think there was some of this. There's a one report that used the word marbled with extremists, but there's also, you know, <laughs> just plain, like, incompetence or corruption or thuggishness. I mean, a lot of yeah. these guys the U.S. is backing, who are now part of the Turkish rebel army, were just, like, warlords. Um,
1: right.
2: uh, Brett McGurk, who ran the anti-ISIS campaign for Obama, uh... He said, like, I'm reading from an article where I'm quoting him. We would hear, I have 5,000 men, and it turned out there would be like 20. This happened over and over again. Or the forces that we wanted to work with were so riddled with extremists that our military repeatedly said, there is no way we can work with these people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially seeing sort of the behavior of a lot of these groups uh, now that they've joined the Turkish-backed FSA. That it's apparent like they're like a lot of them are i mean yeah some of them are very religious but really it is like pretty cut and dry warlordism
2: yeah and you know to some extent i think the the even the secular groups might even be worse to live under because if you're not a religious minority because they just like don't have any qualms with just like you saw the infamous video where Someone had a fight with a store owner, so they just threw a grenade through the store window and, and like, robbed the remainder of the place.
0: Yeah, and then, then when—so, when, for listeners who, again, don't follow this very closely, uh, in the northwestern part of Syria, there was an a area called Afrin, which was a, uh, an area controlled by the YPG that was actually cut off, basically, from the rest of the YPG-held area. It was a very small area. Uh, would it, there'd actually never been any fighting there since the war began. And, uh, Christ, I can't remember. It was, it must've been, two, was it two years ago now. Um, Turkey invaded with a bunch of mercenaries, essentially, uh, FSA now called the TFSA. Uh, and that's FSA is the groups that we're talking about. These sort of like secular and Islamist, uh, rebel groups that some of them fought ISIS, some of them collaborate with ISIS. But they're basically the, the 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 mainstay of the opposition. Uh, a lot of them started working for Turkey, and they were called the TFSA. They invaded along with Turkey and basically engaged in a little light ethnic cleansing, and uh, well, sort of medium term tier uh, ethnic cleansing, and also uh, just incredible scenes of looting. I mean, within days of taking the town, you know, there were people riding around, soldiers on tractors. There was guys in you know balaclavas holding giant machetes over their heads and and people just like loading up wheelbarrows and trucks with with people's possessions. Uh, and and that kind of still continues. I mean, it's, it's basically a gangster regime in the northwest of Syria right now. Um, and so, yeah, like a lot of these groups are really, really uh, they're not saying their best. Right. Which like. You know, for the longest
2: time, that was the U.S. I, all the former officials I talked to say basically, yeah, we, we did try to cultivate these groups against ISIS. That was the plan. Right. Which y- you could see why it didn't work. And I, I mean, that that's kind of how we came to the current policy. There was this weird left-wing uh, Kurdish group in northeast Syria called the YPG that, like, no one really wanted to touch it, especially not the CIA and the State Department, because, like— They had helped Turkey fight these kinds of guys for 40 years. Uh, But they were the only ones who were, you know, organized enough to really put up against the fight against ISIS. And that's kind of where the second faction emerged in the Obama administration, where the Pentagon was like, we want to work with these guys. We like working with these guys. You know, Assad is a bad guy, but we don't really like working with the mainstream opposition. These guys might not be directly fighting Assad, but at you know, if, if you want to undermine Assad's power, the best way would probably be to work with the Kurdish groups, cultivate, uh, like a functioning alternative government in another part of Syria, rather than supporting, you know, warlords and gangsters. And, um, uh, Obama did go with that option. He still was giving covert aid to the other rebel groups, but the U S was overtly helping the YPG. And like, that kind of became a big factional rift where a lot of hawks, particularly in the CIA slash State Department, which, you know, they're joined at the hip, yeah. um, really thought, like, the Pentagon took away their anti-Assad crusade from them, and, and like, they, they missed their chance to deal with Assad, and we really should have gone with the rebels to finish off both Assad and ISIS, and, mm. and uh, this guy, Mike Duran at the Hudson Institute, who thinks that Obama mm. was doing this as a gift to Iran— that the YPG are like a pro-Iran group, and the reason we supported them is because we didn't want to fight Iran and Russia. Which
1: that's a take, but uh, that's the attitude a lot of people have. So what we're seeing is like a basically it's like two rifts in in the state, and you're right to call it the state slash CIA department because uh, it actually is during this time, like kind of the tail end of the Bush years, as we've talked about on the podcast before. And but particularly in the early Obama years, that the line between the State Department and the CIA gets very very blurry. Um, but so these are kind of these two emerging factions. The kind of like we're gonna you know we're gonna continue on with this. You know we we mentioned Timber Sycamore and Train and Equip, and um I, I don't know if people are familiar with those programs, but. You should look into those. Timber Sycamore, I think, was like a billion-dollar CIA program. Um, it was like a, or a little over a billion dollars. But these more kind of like warlord destabilization techniques versus kind of a more, um, you know, w- what you're detailing with the Obama administration backing the YPG, trying to support something from within the, the Syrian state, or, or not the state, but literally the boundaries of the state that's a little more organized.
2: Yeah, and I mean the Pentagon really did like working with the YPG. I don't think because they're Maoists, but uh, although who knows? But <laughs> these guys are not; these guys are reliable. They're not gonna like steal your shit and drive off with it. Um, Jared Zuba at the—he's now at Al Monitor, but he did a report for the Defense Post where um, there's this really cursed U.S. base called Tenth. Uh, look into that. Yes, there's a lot, but basically, it's it's like. You know, we are training anti-Iran forces there and um, spying on the Iranian forces in the middle of this, like, fortress in the middle of the Syrian desert. Um.
0: Yeah, like, to be clear, Tomf is nowhere near any other, like, it's it's like if you set up, I don't even know a place in America this remote, but it is in a remote part of Syria. Like, this isn't adjoined to, like, the YPG area or anything like this. This is, like, butt fuck nowhere.
2: Although there is a a refugee camp that uh, grew up around it because, oh, the Americans are here, they'll protect us, which has become a humanitarian disaster. It's awful. Um, But yeah, there was Jared Zuba did a report uh, recently about some of the rebels who were training at TANF were like running. I think they were being accused of running guns and drugs. And then one of them got found out. So he just like drove off with a bunch of weapons and, like, sold them Classic. to somebody else. Like, he drove <laughs> off in an armored vehicle um, and sold the vehicle. But, like, you know, the YPG didn't do things like this, which is, which is why the 10th Pentagon likes dealing with them. The CIA is a little bit more willing to deal with, like, gray zone, sketchy actors. But, like, the Pentagon does not—they don't want that headache.
0: Yeah. And so— the, the thing is, like, I, I think we got to zoom out even more and see, like, well, what is, like, I mean, obviously there are different factions with different goals, but, like, ISIS is pretty much, well, I mean, aside from, like, sort of a guerrilla insurgency, but, like, ISIS doesn't have, like, really any strongholds anymore. I mean, they lost Mosul, they lost Raqqa, and so, you know, people rightfully wonder, well, I mean, the Americans shouldn't have be been there in the first place— but, like, exactly what the mission is now, or, like, even really the stated mission. Uh, and, and I think it's... it's, it's it, to me, it seems pretty clear is that, that American forces are there essentially to, to deny territory to Iran and uh, to deny territory to Russia and, you know, uh, and to the Syrian government.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's three kind of unspoken policies which I've noticed. Um, one of them... Well, there's two going on right now. One of them failed. Um, there was the safe zone policy, where uh, basically the U.S. tried to trade away YPG territory to Turkey so that we could keep Turkey satiated. And the idea was to insert ourselves as like peacekeepers, so mm-hmm. both Turkey and the Kurds would would need us. Um, and that kind of broke down in October when Turkey said, "Like screw it, we're just gonna we're just gonna go for the whole thing." Um, and Trump kind of said, okay, uh, and, and let Turkey in. But like, this was in the context of like, we had agreed to a thing where the YPG would dismantle its fortifications along the, the Syrian Turkish border and, and didn't have a presence there. So Turkey could just steamroll in. And like, at the end of the day, it didn't matter to the U S because either way, Turkey or the YPG, Iran wasn't going to be there. Um, It did become a little of a problem when the YPG then turned around and said, all right, Russia, protect us. And then suddenly that was like crap, which which brings me to the second policy, which is the unspoken policy of driving the YPG and uh, the Assad regime apart. I mean, the oil is part of that. Um, There's been other reported instances where the U.S. has put pressure on the YPG to stop dealing with the regime in various ways because – you know, the YPG is not fans of the Assad regime. A lot of them were tortured in Assad's prisons. Like, But but they also are willing to deal with them for questions of survival, where the U.S. has, has tried to kind of be a, a block to that. Um, I mean, yeah. just the very presence of U.S. troops and like the oil thing was very provocative to Assad. I don't think he's going to deal oh, yeah. with them until the Americans are gone. Um, but... Yeah, and I mean the, the sanctions are part of it, right? Because you know, this the Syrian Kurds would love to deal with foreign investors and and the outside world, not because they're diehard capitalists, but because you know they they need to trade with the outside world. So there's a third policy which I would call uh, militification. Uh, nobody nobody else calls it that. I just do. But like it's this idea of of spinning off forces outside of the kind of ideological left wing ypg core um that are maybe a little bit easier for the u.s to deal with uh on a more transactional basis Uh, just like driving a wedge between the ypg and the Assad regime this is more subtle um this is not a spoken policy but like this, this but like there there have been little bits and pieces of it um there was a guy uh who uh There was a former CIA analyst who told me with his name, uh, Brian Katz, that, you know, there had been a plan under consideration and efforts underway to cultivate the Arab allies of the YPG as like a separate counter Assad force. Mm. Um, That's that's like the most blatant I've ever had it put. And I can send you the link to the article. But it's there were rumors uh, the summer before the Turkish invasion uh, and some YPG officials were very spooked by this, that the U.S. was going to raise like an anti-Iran army on their territory. Um, again, this is all very subtle, and this is, but, but if you really read in between the lines, you can, you can see what's going on. And I mean, that's kind of what's been taking shape
0: yeah, so like for for listeners who aren't totally aware, in 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 northern Syria, and specifically in like kind of the, what you call the Kurdish faction there, there's the YPG, People's Protection Units, which is a very ideologically left wing um, group that has a long history of being part of the what, what's called the Kurdish freedom movement, sort of the Kurdish national liberation movement. they they uh, they, they follow the the sort of the teachings of uh, of of who they call Reber Apo uh, Abdullah Ojalan. Uh, and, and it's very, I mean, it's very rigidly ideological. Uh, but, uh, sometime I think in, I think in 2015, maybe 2016, uh, a, a, another group was raised called the Syrian democratic forces of which the YPG was a part. So the YPG all of a sudden joins this kind of coalition and it's a pretty loose coalition of, of different sort of either former rebel groups or, or local groups Uh, And the SDF was different. It was less what you could kind of call professionalized and more, more like a militia. Uh, And I, you know, I, I witnessed that firsthand. Um, The SDF troops. I mean, this is not true for obviously everybody, but, but, but mainline SDF troops that I saw were much less uh, disciplined and organized and certainly like not, I mean, a lot of those guys were fighting to get paid and, 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 or, or just for whatever reason, some of them were fighting to loot and, uh, and it, 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 it raised some problems. Uh, There was a lot of, I mean, I, this has not been reported a ton, but from just what I saw uh, firsthand was that, that there was, there's friction between the two groups um, because they don't have necessarily shared alliances. And some of the SDF groups are fighting specifically, uh, you know, to eventually get to Assad or something like that. Uh, You know, it's, all very vague. Uh, and I saw a lot of people do things that I would not deem uh, soldierly uh, or, or very honorable. Uh, and, and I had this suspicion back then um, that the Americans were essentially like trying to get this force raised up so that they could isolate the YPG and eventually, you know, subsune it to not a junior partner role, but like a non-partner role and as now have their own force that, that, that they could control. Because it's a lot more difficult to bribe a YPG fighter or a YPG general than it is to, to, to bribe a general maybe of an SDF group. Uh, and that sort of seems like that plan is, uh, is in place. Because the, the YPG and the SDF went into Derisor, um, and now Deir is an area where there is not a lot of Kurdish people, uh, and, and it was an area that was b- filled with ISIS, but also contested by the Syrian government and the YPG. And since they've been there, I think my suspicions have really started to blossom uh, because there have been quite a lot of problems, and it's almost turned into like a sort of like Wild West type situation and so what 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 i fear is is, is that this is actually happening like the y p g is sort of being um they're 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 trying they're doing they're i think they're engaging this uh militification sort of process
2: right um see the thing is i i don't think that there was a master plan from the beginning from from what it seems to me from within washington the y the s d f project was really like turkey is spooked by these guys we're working with we need a new label but like it kind of evolved or people saw this yeah. as an option um i think the real uh and i mean we don't know how successful this has been i think the real telling thing was in in summer or fall of 2019 there's the uh pencil incident where uh let me back up and say, uh, basically, Mike Pompeo, when he came into the Trump administration, he's like single-minded, wants Iran, Iran, Iran. That's everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he brought these three guys into the Syria team, uh, the trio who everybody should know their name: uh, Ambassador James Jeffrey, who is a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey. Um, Joel Rayburn, who is a former uh, U.S. Army guy. He wrote the Army's official history of the Iraq War. And he's very much Oof. kind of like Iran hawk. I like to deal with the Syrian rebels. And then there's uh, Rich Outsen, another former Army guy. I'm not really sure what his deal is, but I, he's probably going to take his Twitter down after this. But if you look at his Twitter, it's like this bizarre combination of like MAGA and pro-Turkey stuff.
0: Oh, ooh, nice. The classic combo.
1: Maga and turkey is like the uh KFC Taco Bell duo.
0: <laughs> Two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs>
1: yeah. But um th-
2: th- there was a big incident that I I'm I'm saying this all because there's a big incident that um I was I mean the state department hates me after I reported this, I'm pretty sure. Uh where Joel Rayburn um one of these three guys was having a meeting with some Syrian Kurdish officials and was like, work with these rebels that we want you to work with. And the Syrian Kurds were like, no, these guys are, like, sketchy Islamists. And Rayburn apparently uh, flew into a rage and broke a pencil. Uh, that's what I reported. I was later told that it was actually a pen, which which is a little bit harder to do. Um, but... <laughs> I mean like these are these are behind closed doors. There it seems like there are actual conflicts where the US is like, work with these rebel guys that we want you to work with, and the YPG is like, no, 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 we, we don't want to work with these guys. Um and I it's very hard to tell how far along this has gone, um, who's winning in this kind of situation because there's a lot of it's behind closed doors and there's so many factors at play. Um I do think something to watch out for is that uh General Mesloom, the leader of the SDF, was Recently in ez-Zor after uh, some unrest they had, and apparently there's going to be some kind of restructuring of the local government. Uh, I would keep an eye on that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of General Muslim, I mean he's sort of become the face of the SDF and YPG uh, at once, and and uh, like. Uh, what are sort of like some theories behind like America's dealings with them? Like, what do you think America's trying to get out of him?
2: Right. I think the Americans really like the idea that, because like you said, the YPG is very ideological. It's, um, I wouldn't call it Maoist. Um, I think you jokingly were like, they're not anarchists. They're 100% Stalinist." I don't know how jokingly that yes. was, actually. Um, I mean,
0: it's, in, the internal structure is, uh, well, explicitly democratic centralist. But uh, they have uh, actually what they took. They, they actually learned this from the P- PFLP when they trained with them in the Becca Valley in the 70s. A, a form of criticism and self-criticism often associated with Maoist groups they call tech meal. Where, where every night, no matter, well, sometimes you don't do it, but most nights you have like a short criticism, self-criticism session uh, where you're free to criticize anybody and you're supposed to criticize yourself, which is sort of in the Maoist tradition.
2: The, the Syrian Kurds are woke, I see.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They teach but, at Rutgers. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean,
2: like, like everything is done by committee. Everything is done in a very consensus-based way, party-based way, cadres. Um, but uh, the U.S., I think, very much would prefer to work with one strongman. And uh, that's kind of the image that the U.S. media and the Republican Party has put of General Mazloum, which, like, I don't know. It's It's hard to tell. He's definitely built his image more than I think the— traditionally the party cardrows support but like it's i don't know to what extent he's really taken this to heart but like lindsey graham is really pushing this he's always like when i i got on the phone with general Maslum, general Maslum mm-hmm. this and like he tried to bring general Maslum to testify to congress and then the uh general Maslum was like no 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 you talk to our political guys yeah. um with this oil deal, Lindsey Graham tried to portray it as, like, a general Muslim thing, which I think really set off a lot of alarm bells in Syria and Iran, like, mm. holy shit, this guy's a warlord now. But but my understanding is that, like, this was not signed with General Muslim. He might have been present in some of the meetings in the same way that, like, there's a U.S. cabinet meeting, but, like, this, there was, like, a, a political branch that was dealing with the U.S., like... So, so it's hard to tell. I, the U.S. definitely wants it to be a situation where you have like General Muslim and a bunch of lesser warlords who they deal with. There's none of this like weird leftist crap. And um, we can basically raise an anti-Iran army at, and anti-Russia. Don't forget that Russia is also a big part of this uh, yeah. at our whim.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it, is, it, is, it has been kind of funny to watch both the U.S. and Russia court Muslim in the past couple of years. I know that Russia actually flew him or there was, there was reports that Russia flew him to, to, I believe, Moscow to give him a medal sometime, I believe, in 2018 or 2017. Uh, and so, like, what, what that's kind of like my sort of dark suspicion there is that the U.S. is actually sort of trying to isolate the YPG. And, 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 in fact, the U.S. government has stated on, like, a lot of different occasions that they're actually trying to get the YPG to break off from the PKK. And for those listeners who don't know, PKK is the Kurdistan or Workers' Party of Kurdistan. Uh, and it is sort of the mother party of a lot of different parties in, 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 in the various regions that the uh, main, main part of the Kurdish population live in. That's Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Uh, and the YPG is, I mean, I, I, the, people often beat around the bush on this, but the, the YPG is, is a sort of regional branch of that. And so it would be like saying that like the regional branch of the democratic party or whatever should split off from the national party. Like it's not, that's not how it works, but the U S has been pretty like clear in that they have been making attempts to get the YPG to split off from the PKK. Uh, and what I fear is that like, that kind of is the plan as it stands now. It's sort of like they've dialectically kind of come to the conclusion that like we can actually we can actually have both the State Department, CIA, and Pentagon's interests uh, fulfilled by by instead of you know hiring all these different warlords and trying to make them cohesive, but actually making the cohesive cohesive force into a warlord force. And I don't know if they. I mean, I I you know that's my suspicion. I don't know if that's happening, but but it seems to be the most logical thing for the U.S. to do. Uh, and, and I, I, you know, I don't really have hopes that there will be, I mean, I don't have hopes that it'll happen at all, but I don't, I, 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 I don't know if that will happen, but it's certainly like a It's something I believe that the U S is trying to do. And, and, uh, that, 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 like, I, I say that because the U S has seemingly zero interest in it actually allowing the, 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 the Kurdish administration in Northern Syria to function as it sort of should, as, as, it, as it kind of wants to. I mean, for instance, they really don't put a lot of pressure on the Kurdish region in, in northern Iraq to deal with them. Uh, you know, they're like we said, the sanctions. And, you know, the, the really only actual end to the Syrian civil war will be peace talks between the, the YPG and the Syrian government. Uh, and the U.S. has tried very hard to squash those.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you want any clearer, well, first I want to push back a little bit. I mean, the YPG and PKK. When people hear that they're affiliated, people think like there's some du- PKK dudes in the mountains, like yeah. radioing orders. It's it's they're they are separate organizations. Like they're not taking orders. But if you want to talk about like, it would it would be impossible to take the ideological PKK yes. trained cadre out of the. Out of the YPG, that in that sense they are affiliated, but like they're not. Yeah, that's
0: that's that's sort of more. That's a better way of, of putting yeah. what I said.
2: Um, but yeah, if you want any clearer uh, indication of the U.S.'s attitude, uh, look at you know Pompeo appointing James Jeffrey, who like he was a State Department. He started his career as a State Department official in Turkey in 1982, which is like the height of the Turkish state's war against. Not just Kurds, but leftists in general. Uh, Jeffrey actually wrote an essay. Uh, I can send you a link to it, where he basically talked about how great the military, the coup and era of military rule during the 1980s Jesus. was in Turkey. Like he wrote Main an essay team. being like, "This is a model to emulate." Um, yeah. I mean, to, to be old-
0: clear, to be clear on that, uh, I met an old fighter uh, who was with. Uh, with with Bogue which is a Turkish left-wing group in Syria who had been arrested during that that military regime and they had taken this Turkish soldier's uh and he had been he had fought in in Lebanon uh I believe he was actually ethnically uh sorry scratch that uh I believe he was I believe he was ethnically Armenian, and he had fought in Lebanon uh, with during the Lebanese civil war, and then returned to Turkey. And uh, Turkish soldiers had arrested him, and then arrested his wife and raped her in front of him to get him to talk. So this is the regime that, that that Jeffries is talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and I mean, don't forget also like Pompeo before he joined the State Department was CIA. Um, if you want to know. Yeah. Which, which, I mean, in the same way, I think that you mentioned, uh, like a few episodes ago, that Bill Barr is very good at manipulating laws and bureaucracies and mechanisms to get what he wants. Pompeo is very good at this with like narratives and groups of people. So it's very hard to see whether the U.S. is actually doing this um, and and whether it's actually succeeding. There, there were talks a while ago between the the YPG and like the kind of more conservative Kurdish parties. Uh, I think they're ongoing to kind of get a power sharing scheme, which does seem like it's it's meant to dilute the the YPG's power. Um, in, in terms of the the which I think you're referring to the the peace talks now, um, there's been this US uh, there's been this UN sponsored peace process uh, in Switzerland that's been dragging on for years and years. The idea is that you get the uh, Syrian opposition, whatever that means to sit at the table with Assad and arrange for new elections. Uh, sounds great. But a lot of the groups that are negotiating for the opposition are like Turkish state, uh, agents or (laughs) don't really have, don't really have much presence on the ground. Or if they do have presence in the ground, it's under the auspices of Turkey. Um, the YPG SDF Syrian Kurds, Northeast Syria, all of those factions have been completely cut out of this process, like,
1: yeah.
2: completely. And for all the U.S. says it it's, wants to include them, and in, it doesn't seem like there has been any success at including them, they're having this kind of constitutional convention in Geneva, which is going to write the new Syrian constitution. That's next, uh, next week, right? Yeah. Next week as of recording, yeah. And like, the Turkish backed groups get a few seats at the table, the Syrian Kurds, which the the YPG's kind of diplomatic office in Washington was complaining to me about this, don't get any seats. Um, they 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 said that they there was like some civil society organizations talked to the UN and that went nowhere. The end. Now we're going to have these talks without you,
0: um, which is that's astounding because the YPG controls like a significant part of Syria, like more than I think the TFSA does.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, some of this is partly like the other Syrian opposition groups being bitter about the YPG because they did deal with the Assad regime at several points in the war, even if they are opposition. But I think some of it is just the U.S. does not treat the YPG as a legitimate institution. It doesn't give them nearly the support that it has to other, not just in Syria, but rebel groups around the world. I mean, like, they've... The the Mojahedina Khalk, which is like this Iranian like mm-hmm. Islamo-Marxist. Uh... Oh, we've uh,
0: we've we've talked all Seamus, uh, uh, whose last name I can't pronounce, and so I won't try about the MEK before.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah, like they have killed more Americans than the PKK, and they've also been more successful at getting their names taken off the terrorist list. Yeah, like yeah, uh, the the US has not taken the PKK off the terrorist list. Um the us in terms of sanctions we we have an obama's executive order like it said like there's a favorable policy for it, for the syrian opposition and it names some group that like only exists on paper now they never amended that to include the ypg as a as a group that would have a quote, favorable policy for lo- sanctioning which means that basically they have to go through the long way uh to get any kind of sanctions exemption um There was a rumor a while ago that the U.S. was going to do peace talks with the PKK, um, and supposedly this convoy of U.S. officials had gone up to the mountains in in the Turkish-Syria-Iraq border, Um, and then it was later reported that, no, actually, that was a special forces convoy that was examining the aftermath of a a Turkish drone strike, which is pretty dark um, very
0: different yeah i i know that uh, at least until recently I, I believe you were telling me when we talked the other day that the u.s had actually stopped this kind of recently but but while all this has been happening uh the u.s was actually providing targeting uh of of pkk strongholds in the mountains of of iraq and turkey to the turkish government
2: yes yes and um yeah i mean some of this is just like bureaucracies move slowly and like Within the State Department and the CIA, there's definitely a lot of like, like Jeffrey would start his career in Turkey. He no speaks Turkish. Like you know, it's just that's how things were done during the Cold War. Um, and old habits die hard. But I do think that like Pompeo knows that this is leverage. That that he can use this to push the YPG to do. And like, I mean, (laughs) what are they going to do in response? I guess the answer we learned in October was, like, talk to the Russians.
0: Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. is like, uh, like I was saying earlier, I mean, the only actual sensible end of this is talks between the Syrian government and, and the Russians, basically, uh, and and the YPG. But I've noticed that whenever, you know, I'm specifically thinking about last October when Turkey invaded and took uh, Serkanye and Tel Abyad in the north, um that when the, the Kurds like went to go meet with the Syrian government, there was a lot of pressure on them from the Americans to basically halt those talks. And this is as the Americans had pulled back forces and literally basically invited in the, 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 the Turkish-backed rebels and the Turkish government, um, they were still pressuring the YPG not to talk to the Syrian government. And to be clear, there is no way this war is ever ending and that Syria is actually can like get back on its feet until something like that can happen. And so like it, it really, that like lays bare. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about tonight really lays bare uh, like what exactly the strategy here is, because it's certainly not to help anybody in Northern Syria.
2: Right. So there's, there's a really interesting, I think to sum it all up, there was a document that was leaked to CNN. That was like a state department official reporting his meeting with general Mazloom. uh, So we don't know exactly what he said because like the State Department officials is just quoting Muslim and like a brief summary of what he said, which not really specifics, but um, yeah, what Muslim said is, are you asking me to surrender 30 kilometers of my land and then talk? Let me make sure I understand the United States of America wants Turkey to occupy the land. Um, we have no intent to disarm our forces during this confrontation with Turkey. I will not disarm so Turkey can come in to control us and enslave the Kurdish people. Um, Are you planning to let Turkey proceed 30 kilometers? I need to know because if you are not, I need to make a deal with Russia and the regime now and invite their planes to protect this region. Mm. You are not willing to protect the people, but you do not want another force to come protect us. This is... is Direct quotes from Maslum. I can send you the. This was, you know, I remember keep, this. Yeah, which I think really sums up. And like, there are people. There is there is not like a master plan. At the end of the day, there are people in the State Department, in the Pentagon, who tried very hard to protect the YPG. But like, at the end of the day, there are also people I think who sold them down the river. Um, Bolton Bolton has a very great quote about Ambassador Jeffrey. He says that he has clientitis. Um, mm.
1: Which <laughs> That's is a pretty good state- actually Damn I hate to give Bolton credit But that's pretty <laughs> good
0: Classic Bolton zinger
1: <laughs> And Bolton claims The State Department never
2: responded to me when I asked him about this Because I think they had orders like don't talk about the Bolton book But like Bolton claims that They were they were all going into negotiations with Turkey And like Bolton did not want Turkey To invade Syria because not he He made it clear he has no love for the YPG He calls them terrorists straight up mm-hmm. But he also called Erdogan a little Mussolini He just thought that the chaos would be bad for, like, the U.S. mission against Iran. So he had no <laughs> intention of Turkey—Pompeo had no intention of Turkey going in to invade. The The military was really opposed to it. They all were sitting down before they were going to talk to Turkey to be like, what are we going to discuss with them? And Jeffrey shows up with this map that's like a color-coded map of the areas that he intended Turkey to take, according to Bolton. Um, Again, the State Department has not Confirmed or denied, they just haven't commented On whether this map existed I sent a FOIA request and they said your request Is not specific enough Um, So I sent an appeal We'll see if they ever turn up with the map But like, yes, there are are people In the US government who genuinely wanted to protect The YPG, but there are also people who like Didn't really care Or were like actively hostile To the YPG And like, Pompeo again, is very skilled at manipulating factions. And like, I don't think he cares which faction wins as long as the U.S. is able to use northeast Syria, is able to keep it out of Iran's hands, to a lesser extent, keep it out of Russia's hands and like push, make it very a thorn in the side of the regime, make it a part of the economic and military pressure against the regime,
0: Yeah, because that's like that. The, the, like you were saying, like this, the Syrian Kurds and the the government, like, don't really have an openly hostile relationship. Like, like, I, I, it's hard to stress that, like, how sort of strange it was to, I was, I spent a couple of days in Kamishlo, which is the largest city in northern Syria. And Kamishlo, large parts of it are under government control, and large parts of it are under Syrian Kurdish control. And specifically, like, in the souk, like, the marketplace in the middle. There are, you're not allowed to be armed, um, but there are soldiers from both sides walking around. Like, I had lunch at a table with a Syrian soldier. Uh, And it is, it's it's really strange. And it's like, now, in northern Syria, there are Turkish troops, Russian troops, American troops, Turkish-backed FSA, YPG, and SDF, which are like six... Kind of distinct forces there, uh, with a lot of kind of competing aims and goals, uh, and it's just like there's there's it's it's really it's it's kind of hard to see exactly uh, at any point in the Syrian civil war where things will go. But but from what I gather, like looking through this in the lens of what the U.S. can do against Iran is the sort of best way to look at it or best best way to take a guess and but what's going to happen?
2: Yeah, and. um you know, uh, if you want to talk about conflicted groups, every so often the U.S. gets into some firefight with like a Syrian government force or yes. the Russians will try to run them off the road with tanks. It's like ridiculous. Um, there was James Jeffrey blurted out once, because he does this sometimes, he just blurts things out at a press conference. He's just like, oh yeah, you know, we've we've mostly had a peaceful relation with the Russians. There was that time when we like accidentally kidnapped a major general, but like... Other than that, it's all fine.
0: I didn't even know about that. Incredible.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, in terms of uh, as long as Pompeo is in the State Department and uh, as long as there's the Republican Party in the White House, I think that it is going to be looked at through this instrumental, what can we do against Iran? I think a Biden administration might be different. They might bring back Brett McGurk, who... He's no fan of the Iranians, but, like, he's also willing to talk to them. He helped do a lot of prisoner exchange negotiations.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, But, yeah, at the present moment, the the lens is what can we do with Iran? And right now the Trump administration is acting like they're going to lose, and they're trying to lock in, including some recent confrontations with the UN and including this oil deal. How can we, like, lock the U.S. into a confrontational stance with Iran all across the Middle East, so
1: Biden can't undo it. I was going to ask about Biden. So that's funny that you brought that up because then it's but um, yeah, I think it's hard to kind of anticipate where these, you know, just to bring it back to, you know, these kind of like different factions in the history of these different factions, the State, Dep- State Department and, you know, conversely, at the Pentagon that we've outlined, like where they'll they'll go. I do think, you know. We, you know, the, the kind of like Turkophile angle is concerning. And I wonder, like, I guess my question is, do you think outside of, uh, I mean, do you think that there is, like how how robust within the State Department would you say the kind of like Turkophile angle is? Because we, we haven't really talked too much on, on this episode. I think our previous episode on Syria, we talked more about Turkey's role in, I don't know, the quagmire, if I could just call it that. And um, kind of their positioning, um, you know, again, even with these upcoming peace talks and, and, and their kind of continued encroachment in Syrian territory. But I just worry, you know, I worry about the like, the increasingly close relationship between Turkey and the U.S. But you but you seem to think that that would that would kind of dissipate under a Biden administration.
2: No, I don't think that. I just think that Biden is going to be less focused on countering Iran. And I think the people who work for Biden are going to be more, more about like, how can we solve the Syria mess without more like blow ups. Um, It's hard to predict exactly because there's like 1000s of people vying for jobs, but it's not going to (laughs) be in terms of Turkey, though. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things at play. So i washington really doesn't know what to do with turkey because you have people who were cold warriors or like want to be cold warriors who remember turkey as like our nato ally Mm. like they were part they were part of like the u.s they still have are part of the u.s nuclear umbrella against russia um they were a very big part of the war on terror um their base is there Uh, It took a very large popular uprising in Turkey to stop them from allowing us to use their bases to invade Iraq in 2003. Um, But at the same time, there's a lot of factions in the U.S. government who are fed up with them. I mean, uh, there is – so the the EUCOM, the European command of the U.S. military, likes Turkey, likes dealing with Turkey, NATO nuclear umbrella and all that. CENTCOM, the Middle East command, has a lot of negative experiences with them in Iraq and Syria – beyond just the Syrian Kurd stuff. Um, there is a lot of people, I think, in the the kind of evangelical Iran hawk or pro-Israel groups who think of Erdogan as like an Islamist. Mm. Um, Foundation for Defense of Democracies keeps trying to portray Erdogan as like the next, like, Khomeini of Iran.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> That's a, I have a very funny image.
1: Interesting. Okay, okay.
2: <laughs> um, and I think a lot of Democrats think of Erdogan as just like another, like you know autocrat they have they like, like like to talk about autocrats or dictators that trump cozy's up to which is true mm-hmm. i think trump vibes with erdogan on some weird level and
0: um he does yeah they, they really yeah. they really do vibe together they connect well but, there's a lot
1: of people around trump that have also like greased the wheels on that shit you know yes true <laughs> <laughs> there's a what? lot of guys close to the trump admin and in the trump admin being like hey Check out my buddy Erdogan, and here's some cool facts about him. And oh, check yeah. out this. And you know, we've got a lot of business uh, interests together. And how about yeah, this guy? Yeah, and, yeah, I,
2: I mean, mean, Michael Flynn. For all the RussiaGate fanatics are obsessed yeah, with, like, man. Michael Flynn as like a Russian spy. He was like a freaking Turkish agent. Like he was. He basically- literally was
0: a Turk, like legally a Turkish agent.
2: Yeah. So I think the Biden administration is going to be a fight between all these different facts. I mean, the right wing, just like the Trump administration's of. If- fight between like evangelicals who hate turkey and cold warriors who like turkey the biden administration is going to be a fight between like our allies traditional alliances europe and democracies types versus people who are like erdogan is a thug and corrupt um i think if turkey were to get a more secular uh u.s friendly government then the not gonna biden- happen <laughs> I think that's what the Biden administration would like. They'd like Turkey to be friendly to us again. Well, and-
1: sure. Or at least Which- predictable. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things is that so many people are just like, we have no fucking clue what Erdogan is going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: yeah. like, you know, there there is, I think, a real chance that like Erdogan will also try to push further into Syria as well. Yeah, absolutely. So-
2: yeah, I think though... The Russians are not going to... The Russians have really run out of land to give Erdogan because... Um, mm. And I think Assad, too. Assad, the Russians are perfectly happy to trade away Russian land. And I think this is where you get the kind of internal fights on that side. Like, right. the Russians are happy to trade away this land. Assad, as much as he, like dislikes like the YPG being outside his control he understands that if like Turkey gets that territory he's never getting it back like
0: yeah I, it's it's crazy I mean if you look at Afrin it's like it's all all the signs are in Turkish all those school children I mean it looks like something out of like you know Austria 1938 or whatever like all children were waving little Turkish flags there's a graveyard I believe in Sara Kanye where people I know are buried that uh, the turkish backed fsa just raised essentially like destroyed all the graves who know god, no god knows what they did with the bodies and put up this giant like new administrative building with like the turkish flag on it and all this stuff and all these signs in turkish jeez yeah, yeah. i mean it's the turkification it's it is like ethnic cleansing yeah. because it's of course illegal to have signs in kurdish in turkish areas
2: yeah. I mean, I, there were instances. It was interesting during the October invasion when, like, Russia pulled back and let Turkey, and then Assad and Iran, like, sent troops to the front. And, like, I mean, that's, like, the funny yeah. thing about the, 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 like, Foundation for Defensive Democracies neocons saying that, like, Turkey and Iran are exactly the same. Well, they're not. Like, they've shot at each other in Syria. Um,
0: yeah. I, think- I mean, I mean, the Turkish Air Force obliterated a, a, uh, NDF, which is like a sort of militia sort of uh, supportive group to the uh, to the SAA, the Syrian army, uh, when they came to defend Afrin, like Syrian, like non irregular Syrian troops went up to Afrin to fight alongside the YPG. And they were offered no of this, none of the support that the Syrian army gets. But like these are Iranian backed groups, uh, sort of uh, akin to the ones in Iraq. And they were they were killed by a lot of them were killed by the uh, by the Turkish air force.
2: Yeah, I mean, I honestly, if you have to ask, if you have to go on a limb, what Erdogan's kind of where he's most comfortable? He wants to be kind of like a gateway between Europe and the and the Muslim world, where like like kind of the king Islamist who he, the he'll deal with the West, but like at the head of like an army of Islamists who he can like kind of hold over their head. But mm, like, yeah, I think he would be. I think he would be happy to deal with the us if, if they would let him do that. I, I think that the Biden administration would not they might hold their nose if they feel like Russia is a bigger problem, um, mm-hmm. but I think also they, they, they don't let, they'd rather deal with a turkey that's a little more secular.
1: Yeah yeah, we have to wrap up in a second, but I do want to mention just really quickly that like um, one thing that concerns me and that I think about a lot, and I've been thinking about um pretty much since 2015 is that one thing that unites a lot of these factions uh, within the departments is their desire and like um, uh, I guess desire is the best word, but you know, like (laughs) unrelenting desire on a scale. We'll say all the factions have a different or somewhere on a different scale of unrelenting desire to contain and, or like, uh, destroy russia and like that is something that really concerns me you know when we're talking about potential biden administration versus a potential trump administration because that's basically a vision shared across the board and that ends up having i mean not only is that pretty like not well covered in the mainstream media um for a lot of different reasons but also you know that has a lot of different ramifications obviously as we zoom out and you start to see a lot of these very complicated conflicts as proxies for much larger potential conflicts. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about something with a country such as Russia. So I would just like flag that for people. I don't know. I'm always talking about that, but it's, it's really concerning. Um, You know, there's, there's been plenty of articles written. There was a piece I think in like 2014 or 2015, in foreign policy, I should dig it up, uh, discussing like various uh, Pentagon plans for destabilizing and or invading Russia and what that would look like. So I don't know. It's something to think about. And all the Russiagate stuff obviously feeds into that, which I will not harp on at this That doesn't help moment.
0: with negotiations <laughs> with Russia. Yeah. yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You guys can follow Matthew on Twitter at Matthew. I'm not going to spell that out for you. If you don't know how to spell that, then <laughs> you shouldn't be like, I'm sorry. Maybe you're German or something. M A T T H E W underscore petty. Not in the way that Liz is to me sometimes. What? Uh, I'm just joking. I'm that anti- was being petty. Petty. I uh, mean, not Matthew though. Just the, you know, the... so Matthew underscore P E T T I, uh, at Twitter there. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I got to say that one thing I like about our podcast is that we say to the left, hey, you think you can get by... Not, ha- not thinking or knowing about Syria. Guess what, buckos? You're wrong. You're
0: fucking wrong.
1: You're wrong. And guess what? Welcome to Truanon. You got to do the reading.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do and the You got to read. I, I, I can't remember what articles we're linking under here, but you got to read them. Yeah, do more uh, reading. Do extra reading. Exactly. Also, get like... The get the books. Get the books. Although, I got to say, not a lot of great books out on Syria. No, can, you know, it's, it's a more metaphorical
1: thing. I guess my point is... You know, I think that I know about I think 99.9% of every self-identified leftist I've ever met has basically their attitudes toward the Syrian conflict is like I don't know. I don't yeah. have an opinion. I can't have an opinion on Syria. Guess what? Well, it's, yes you can if you educate yourself.
0: I think that I think a lot of the um I think a lot of it comes from like this real need to find like the good. These are the good guys, and I support them, and everything they mm-hmm. do is right a hundred percent of the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and and yeah. I'll tell you, as a guy who was a, involved in this conflict, that is not true. And there is a lot more. Like the one thing I try to stress when I talk to people who uh, who ask me about it, because I, I tend not to like really volunteer a lot about it, because it's kind of corny to talk about it like that. But like is that is that things are so malleable out there mm. in terms of alliances and in terms of, like, what the situations are. And so, like, any of this could really change at any time. Uh, it's really difficult to predict. Um, and and oftentimes, the partisans in America, I mean, that's all I can really speak to, can be more dogmatic about a lot of stuff than the mm. partisans perhaps in the actual country itself. Right. Because it's really easy to hand-wave a lot of stuff by, like, uh, from afar without really looking into it, which is a traditional, it's very big on the left to just be like, well, I've seen these memes or whatever about these guys. So they're either right or wrong or whatever. Mm. Uh, when when the truth is, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, I mean, a good heuristic is that the US is always wrong. Well, uh, that's
1: true. But I think yeah. also, yeah, I think you nailed it on the head by saying that the black and white good and evil um, lens that, Far too many people, I think out of laziness, to be honest, rather than the yeah. kind of naivete. I mean, honestly, in my experience, it's been laziness. Uh, choose to, basically choose to use that kind of lens to look at nearly all foreign policy uh, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 issues. But primarily you see it in, in something, um, you know, in the case of Syria, which is, you know, like you said, highly factional, highly... Um, uh, you know, has changed so much just over the past four years in terms of power struggles and moves and, and leaders and, and, you know, collapsing um, power centers and, and, and geopolitical forces. So I, I don't know, I would just, I mean, I am being serious a little bit when I say like, you know, it, it's not enough to sit back and say it's okay for me to not have an opinion or not know about this because it's difficult or complicated like no actually like this stuff is very important and and crucial um to to, even to understanding like you know like we try to outline I think and, and or attempted to outline in this in this interview like you know these factional disputes within our own military apparatus that are key Mm -hmm. for understanding so many other things, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's that's really important.
1: It's not enough to just put your head down and say, this is complicated. I don't need to have a part of it. So that's my message. Do do the reading, hit the books, do your homework. You know, be curious.
0: Well, I think I can think of no better note to end it on than that. Well, that's nice. Um, Actually, yes, I can. Oh, great. What is it? <laughs> My name is Brace.
1: <laughs> I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by Young Chomsky, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Oh, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jim. Jim.